Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the CSIS Energy Program. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. Today we're releasing an episode on climate policymaking in the United States and China, so it's fitting that it's Earth Day. We recently hosted Kelly Sims Gallagher with the Fletcher School at Tufts University and Xiaowei Xiong with the Development Research Center at the State Council in China to discuss their recent book, The Titans of the Climate, Explaining Policy Process in the United States and China. Recent years have seen cooperation between the two countries and the climate space deteriorate. But by studying the climate policy process in both the United States and China, Kelly and Xiao Wei make the case that the more we understand about each other's goals, differences, and similarities, the more likely climate policy cooperation is to succeed. Kelly and Xiao Wei talked with my colleague Jane Nakano, also a longtime follower of U.S.-China relations about their book the U.S. decision to leave the Paris Agreement and China's reaction, and about how both countries might find common ground again. Welcome, Kelly and Xiao Wei. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, So, you know, this is one of those books that I really wish I had a chance to read when I first started working on U.S.-China energy relations back almost 20 years ago at DOE, because it really lays out nicely how the systems are different, but then you also point out the similarities and et cetera. I mean, there's so much uh, that I think the readers can benefit. But to start with, um, before we get into the sort of differences per se, you know, for the, the U.S. commitment uh, to Paris has been to reduce the, the greenhouse gas emissions by 26 to 28 percent by 2025. And China is to reduce the carbon emissions uh, by 2030 or earlier, um, how did the two governments arrive at these goals? I mean, what you know, what went into the consideration? If you both can tell me a little bit about the thinking behind it and how the countries got there. So I'll describe the U.S. side uh, for the for the target formation. Uh, actually, in the U.S., it was a bottom-up process, agency by agency, and there was a very formalized interagency process led by the White House during the Obama administration that culminated in a cabinet meeting where there was the decision to actually take on the 26 to 28 percent reduction below 2005 levels by 2025. Uh, the U.S. used a modeling approach to inform its decision where, you know, we inputted all these different individual policies, mostly regulations, because there was an assumption that it would not be possible to have a, you know, a congressional bill that would pass. And based on that, determined that it would be possible to achieve, you know, at the lower end of that target range, uh, based on, you know, policies that we felt confident we could implement. And then there was a hope that through innovation and state-level action, we might be able to be more aspirational and get to the 28%. And so that was the main basis and rationale behind the 26 to 28%. It actually would have doubled the effort, doubled the rate of reductions compared to the previous period, the Copenhagen to Paris period, where the U.S. had a 17% uh, reduction target. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, actually, in China, there a leading group for addressing climate change, uh, in government side, and the group leader uh, is the vice prime minister, uh, 
uh, usually. And uh, the member of the this group, uh, there will be a different uh, related uh, minister, such as NDRC Minister of uh, Ministry of Finance, or something like that. And uh, th there will be an office of the leading group, of uh, of uh, the office of the addressing climate change leading group, usually in the NDRC. Actually, uh, addressing climate change bureau on the NDRC is uh, the office. So it's uh, two two title, one body, and uh, this office uh, undertake the uh, regular work of the climate change uh, issues. And uh, there are expert group also outside the government. They will give the policy suggestion from the different uh, university think tankers and, and they give the policy suggestion to the office of the addressing climate change. And uh, uh, this office will set some also suggestion to the leading group. So the leading group will choose which one is uh, proper. So, so the, the, the process is, is something like this. You know, Kelly, you mentioned a little bit about the role of Congress uh, in the uh, context in this particular case that, uh, you know, the uh, legislative approach seemed very unlikely um, back then. But so, you know, obviously in the U.S. we have our political setup is quite different from China's. And, you know, when we compare it to China's, you know, I feel like the U.S., system ought to be harder. But then at the same time, the Chinese system has its own complexities, right? So what are some of the things that you try to emphasize to your American colleagues that do not know China as well as you do um, as to why, you know, China cannot go ahead and just implement all these wonderful, you know, laws and regulations that they have on book? Yeah. I think one of the biggest misconceptions about China is this idea that if the government just issues a policy, it will definitely be enforced um, because of the one-party system. And in reality, the structure of the government uh, makes it harder for China to implement and enforce policy because China is a very hierarchical government where the very top, the at the central government level, they are responsible for developing and formulating the policies, like the National Leading Group on Climate Change. But they rely on lower levels of government, the lower four tiers, provincial, city, township, to actually do the implementation of the policy. And for those lower level officials, they're receiving many policy mandates from on high, and they have to decide which one is most important. You know, they have limited time. Maybe their local interests are not consistent with the policy mandate coming down to them. And so they may walk very slowly in implementing the policy that the central government is asking them to implement. So this is one reason why implementation and enforcement is, tends to be much weaker in China than in the United States. In the U.S., our federal agencies can directly enforce their policies at the local level. The EPA has a local regional office in every state and 
directly enforces its regulations, and this is not、uh, mirrored in China. Okay,、uh, just、uh, add some information. So, because the the different、uh, level of the government in China, so just、uh, Kelly mentioned the upper level, just、uh, make decision. The implementation actually in the low level, almost the lowest level, town level or、uh, county level. So. Pollution problem occurs, for example, in county level or in town level. When the central government、uh, see this, they didn't.、Uh, they just、uh, give、uh, instruction to province. Something happened. For for example, the people in the region they reflect the problem to the to the highest to the central level. It's so serious pollution in here. So it's and、uh, the. The the central level government、uh, receive the f- refract refraction. Then he will instruction to the province level, and province level also give the instruction to city level, and also city level give the instruction to the town or county level and the town level. It's just、uh, a lot of、uh, how to say agent pr- principle.、Mm, principle agent.、Uh, principle agent. So a、uh, serious. Information asymmetry、mm-hmm. and、uh, incentive incompatibility, incentive incompatibility in- of inca- incentives. Yeah,、right. yeah, yeah. Right. So a、uh, very serious. So when the county level or town level, they will connect it or deal with the issue with the enterprise directly, and、uh, usually the, the the local enterprise has close. Relationship with the local government, so so the problem is why the implementation problem is so serious.、Mm-hmm. So it's a long process. So it, it's my add. That's wonderful. Um. So the in the U.S. we have a lot of judicial intervention in the process. So in China's process, what role does the court have in this process? Is it mainly to, um. Like punish those that do not、um, comply, or is it is there is there role for them to intervene in the implementation and enforcement process? Well, it's it's a difficult problem because the jury system in China is very different、uh, in U.S. So, for example, in in city level,、uh, some guy、uh, in the party side he coordinates different branch. Uh, how to say? It's a little complicated. Maybe let me try to do. Let me try to do the judiciary. Do you want me to try? Okay. Okay. You okay. okay. <laughs> I think、uh, first of all, the the way to think about the separation of powers is really important as a starting point because in the United States we have equal division of power between the executive, legislative, and judiciary, and in China there is no separation of power. Uh, among these three branches of government, and on the government side, the administrative state dominates over the legislative and judicial branches. But another crucial difference is that the party has appointments in all of these branches of government, and so the party has a means to influence outcomes. In every branch of government, and the party control is thus very important、um, in determining outcomes. So yeah, so if if if、uh, some ordinary people he wanted to sue 
uh, enterprise, uh, usually it will be uh, according to different uh, uh, situation. But uh, usually, if the top leader of this city wanted to interfere with this thing, he has a channel to to influence. Influence. So because the leader of the jurist system or policy system also belong him. Belong to him as a member of the party. Uh, yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. So he the high rank in the party side, uh, party secretary of the city, Siwei Suji. So so he the absolute power over this guy under them. So they can influence them. In the China system, um, there are a type of uh, stakeholders and players that we don't have in the U.S. And one of them is the, the state-owned enterprises. Um, if you can tell us a little, a little bit about how the state-owned enterprises, uh, the type of roles that they play in some of the uh, climate policy making, that would be wonderful. So um, because SOE has a different level, just like the different government, it will be the central government owned the enterprise. The province government owned the um, enterprise, and also city and the township Township may be less, but uh, the most important uh, influence uh, SOE is central government owned. And this enterprise also has a party rank according to the different uh, enterprise. But uh, central owned government uh, enterprise, uh, usually they have a wise minister above. So it means this top leader of SOE appointed by the party organization department. So it means this guy's rank is similar to vice minister of, for example, NDRC, Ministry of Finance, or something like this. And some, some enterprise, SOE, their leader is a central committee member. In the party. In the party. It's a, it means the 400 over 200 top leaders. So it, it means their rank in the party is very high. So there were two effects. One effect, it, uh, it must follow the instruction from the above the party side. So he must obey or follow, and he will perform the very positive attitude to the, for example, climate policy issues. So, okay, this policy is very, very good. For us, um, maybe in fact it's not it's not good for the company of the oil. Uh, it's in one side. Another side, it can use the this their party members' states to influence because because they have so high, so they they, they give some policy suggestion or they have a great influence directly to to have impact on the on the top leaders. So. It's it's different. <laughs> I mean, it's very different um, in the system, and I think that's that is one of the the, the uh, truly the contribution of what you know you two authored is the demystifying. You know, that's been sort of central, um, you know, I guess the objective of your your writing. But because there are so many different actors in in your you know in China system from the U.S. and vice versa. Um, I think we've, you know, it's it's so easy to misunderstand each other's uh, system, but then also intention. 
But, so one of the other things that interests me about China is that you are now um, embarking upon uh, nationwide emissions trading. You've had you know, more than uh, you know half dozen provinces that experimented with the the pilot program. And um, so how uh, how has China decided to do the the emissions trading? Although the you know. That's not something that you've been doing for a long time in, in much of the economy as a whole. Well, China's decision to embark on a national emissions trading system followed this period of experimentation at the at the sub-national level. So there were uh, seven pilots, I think, uh, at the provincial level, and some of them were at the city level, like Shenzhen had a pilot program. And they did a lot of learning. That was really experimental. They did a lot of learning from those experiences and then brought it up to the central government level. And this is a very common feature of policymaking in China is to experiment at the local level and then make a national policy. And in 2015, in the context of a joint presidential statement between President Obama and President Xi, President Xi announced his intention to establish a national emissions trading system. And at the same time, President Obama announced his intention to implement the Clean Power Plan. And so these were intended to be parallel announcements. And indeed, China went ahead and established the national emissions trading system last year. Um, Their ambition kind of scaled up and scaled back down. Originally, they had intended to include, you know, a large number of sectors, as many as 20 different sectors in this national emissions trading system, but in the end decided to start with the power sector, which in and of itself is very large in China. Their power system is almost twice as large as ours in terms of capacity. And the intention is to strengthen this system over time. You mentioned the fact that it's unusual that China picked a market-based instrument uh, for um, implementing climate policy, and that's true. That's one of the puzzles. It's um, kind of ironic that the United States, which likes to um, preach you know, the merits of market-based instruments, actually hasn't used a market-based instrument yet in terms of implementing climate policy, and China went ahead with a national emissions trading system. But I think China understood that the power of the markets was very strong, and it was possible to um, potentially get much more cost-effective emissions reductions through a national emissions trading system than taking a regulatory approach. And this also uh, gets to the points that Xiaowei was making earlier, that because it's so challenging to implement and enforce regulation in China, using the power of the market through an emissions trading system, might be a more effective means of implementation than a regulatory approach. Whereas the United States has very strong regulatory institutions, and so perhaps in some respects that explains why the U.S. has so far taken a regulatory approach. I just uh, add some comment for the local ETS. For for the local government, actually uh, in China there are a lot of uh, strong competition with each other. So uh, if the local leaders, they want to get a promotion, so maybe usually the growth rate, uh, they have a very growth rate, uh, maybe have a more opportunity to get a 
promotion. Also, the ETS it is a test. So for the local government, they wanted to take this opportunity to to be to be better and、uh, get some evidence. So so they have strong incentive to try this. And、uh, another consideration is、uh, they don't want to hurt themselves very more. So the the, the trade system so the cost will be minimal. Uh, so just、um, can imagine, and also the 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 policy experiment、uh, suggested by central government. So 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 there will be a pilot. So the the process is、uh, central government have a suggestion which one will willingness to 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 do the experiment. So so actually it's your volunteer. Some regions they have want to be better performance. They will join the this scheme. And、uh, for the national ETS, actually, they they want to include more sector, but、uh, at last they find it's too complicated, so they just narrow. And also, if you include more sectors, the 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 cost will be a、uh, significance because the China's growth rate is is decreased in this period. How about the the discussion of carbon tax? Is that something that's still somewhat around, at least、uh, in the within the academic circle? So there is some thinking about using a carbon tax in lieu of an emissions trading system for other sectors in China, in part because it's much easier to administer.、Um, there's a very well-established tax collection system in China, and so adding a carbon tax. Although it is complicated in terms of, especially negotiating who gets the tax revenue, it is a relatively easy tax or easy policy instrument to implement. And so, I would not be surprised if China were to implement a carbon tax for different sectors over time, in addition to the emissions trading system it has already established. Actually, China environmental tax already issued, maybe begin twenty eighteen. But uh, it's uh, only focus on the pollutant, so the water, the air, and the the, the noise. But the carbon, so it's a long discussion. Maybe it will be implemented in future. So President Trump、um, has announced the intent to withdraw the United States from the Paris、uh, Agreement, as we all know. How was that received by the Chinese climate policymakers? I mean, obviously, that was he during the campaign said that's what he'd do. So, in a way, it may not have been a surprise. But you know, what sort of an impact has that had on China's?、Uh, Uh, climate policy makers, but then also China's effort to、uh, deliver on its Paris commitment. Well, from I mean, first to just present what happened. President Trump announced his intention to withdraw from the Paris Agreement right after, you know, shortly after being elected, and President Xi immediately responded in a speech at the international negotiations that China would stay the course and China would not withdraw, no matter what the U.S. did, and that was a very important signal to the rest of the international community that at least China was going to honor its commitments, and therefore other countries should too. And so far, only two other countries have signaled their intent to also withdraw. 
One is Turkey and the other one is Brazil. But neither of them yet have withdrawn either. So I think it's possible if President Trump loses the next election and the next president does not actually withdraw the United States, it would be relatively easy to get back on track in the international negotiations. That being said, I have been able to observe, and Xiaowei can probably add, uh, that there seems to be less urgency in China for developing and implementing new climate policies domestically than there was during the uh, previous administration, previous U.S. administration, because this was one of the top tier priority issues for the Obama administration and its interaction with China. And we almost got into a competitive relationship with each other in a positive way, in a virtuous way, where we wanted to be able to bring something significant to the table, you know, for example, for a presidential joint statement. So we would work on trying to identify what's a new policy that we're prepared and ready to implement. So, for example, in that same 2015 joint statement, both countries announced new heavy-duty vehicle fuel economy standards. That's the kind of example of where we were motivating each other to get down to business and implement new climate policies. And now there's much less urgency on the, on the Chinese side to act quickly and decisively and strongly on climate change. And of course, on the U.S. side, the Trump administration is literally trying to halt or roll back all of the climate regulations that were issued during the Obama administration. Um, as the President Xi said, uh, we have a sovereign uh, reason to make good relationship uh, uh, with U.S. and has no single reason to de destroy the relationship. But actually, in fact, there are a lot of uh, conflict area between China and the U.S. So we wanted to select it, uh, a proper area to show our cooperation. So actually, the climate issue is a very proper area. So for China side, uh, it's a very important uh, and motivation. Motivation, yeah to make good relationship with U.S. and uh, also be responsible for the international community. So if the, this, this factor missed, actually there will be no less urgency. Just uh, I agree with Kelly. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's an important thing for, for, for China. So if a new president comes into power in 2020 in the, in the United States, so the Chinese colleagues are ready to potentially collaborate with the U.S. But, I, you know, can we just pick it up from where we left uh, f four years ago? Or are there things that we really should be aware of um, as we would try to reinvigorate the, the bilateral collaboration in this area? Well, I think there is certainly going to need to be some effort made to rebuild trust between the two countries, um, not only because of the climate change issue, but on a whole host of issues. I think there's a lot of tit-for-tat activity right now, whether it's on the trade war or on other issues. So the first order of business would be trying to restore trust. I do think that the United States and China need to be cooperating together on this issue because our economies are so intertwined and because we both have competitiveness concerns. So it's hard for an American president to make an argument to 
his or her business community that they should have to live with you know, regulation or emissions trading systems or climate change policy if the Chinese side doesn't have comparable policies and vice versa. It's hard for President Xi or the party to make the argument to Chinese firms that they should have to do more than American firms are having to do. And so by moving step by step, we won't have the same policies, but we can be having sort of the same level of effort in both countries, that reduces the concerns about competitiveness on both sides of the Pacific. And I think that's very important. The truth is that China is moving ahead with all of the policies that it said it would move ahead with. So really, the trust building has to be on the U.S. side to actually get back on track and be able to achieve its target under the Paris Agreement. And right now, we have veered off track (laughs) Okay, I I think the opportunity still exists because I I just think the the climate policy action a lot of factors, um, so some some factor missed, but the other factors still exist. So the China will still hold on the policies such as five year plan and the scheme and the, also a lot of policies. But uh, if U.S. can contribute. So there will be a strong action, strong policy. So I think the opportunity for cooperation still exists. And I certainly hope that the, you know, truly I think this uh, book helps demystify the system. And I, I would say that probably anyone who would have to, you know, deal with the U.S.-China climate, but not just climate, you know, the bilateral issues have a chance to read it and understand that. There are a lot of differences, but then there are a lot of similarities in you know between the two countries, and knowing where the the leverage is, knowing how to turn on the the correct incentives in each other's systems can really help the other country better understand our system, vice versa, and you know and have sort of synergy from the all these uh, clean energy, uh, whether it's innovation or manufacturing, that the, each country has a capacity to develop. Uh, So, but yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Be sure to check out their book, Titans of the Climate. There's a link on our website. And as always, thanks for listening to Energy 360. Find more episodes on CSIS.org or on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.